0: Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Help Side Basketball Strategy and Analytics Podcast. I am your host, John Jansen, and I come to you on the eve of the NBA Finals between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about the Eastern and Western Conference Finals and preview the NBA Finals. In the analytics section, we are going to talk about basketball gravity. And going along with that in the strategy session, we're going to be talking about diagramming a play, and engaging defenders. So there's a lot to get to, so let's get right to it. Um, Starting with the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. We'll start in the Eastern Conference Finals, and I have to say I'm humbled. I picked against LeBron the last two rounds, and I have been wrong the last two rounds. And so I must say... And I say this to you, LeBron, I know you're listening. I am sorry for picking against you in the East. Clearly, you are unbeatable in the East, and I was an idiot for picking against you ever. So, hopefully, LeBron, you'll keep on listening. Uh, You know, it was a really interesting series because the momentum changed so much, And at no point was anyone really sure what was going to happen. You know, I was pretty convinced after game two that Boston would win the series, that they would find a way to win one in Cleveland. And they went to Cleveland and they looked like a completely different team. They looked apprehensive. They looked scared. They weren't nearly as aggressive as they were at home. And... They never really were in any of those games. And I know, obviously, the scores were close, but you never really thought that they were going to win any of those games in Cleveland. And it's such an interesting strategy to let LeBron just keep on beating you and beating you. And I know, obviously, that's not their strategy, but at some point, I thought they would throw a second guy at LeBron, and they didn't do that. And I just don't understand why, especially when you have... J.R. smith who can't make a shot to save his life you have uh jordan clarkson who couldn't score you have larry nance who was okay but you know i i remember everyone you know the announcers were like oh larry nance is playing great larry nance is playing great then you look at the box score he has four points and i know he was hustling but i'm talking about stopping cleveland's offense and i would have just thrown another guy and just said okay george hill Okay, Jordan Clarkson, you go ahead and you get 25, and we'll rotate and see what we can do. And instead, LeBron just took the ball at them and backed them down, and of course there was some times when they sent multiple defenders, but usually they sent multiple defenders after LeBron was already making his move. And I think that's where the fatal flaw was, because LeBron, if he gets a double team, will pass. But if LeBron's already in his move and the second guy comes and it's too late, well then it's too late, he's already going to score on you. So I think the optimal way to, to beat LeBron is to send that second defender at him early because he will always pass it and then take your chances rotating and making guys who aren't that good beat you. And Boston didn't do that and it ended up costing them in the end. And I thought especially in Game 7, they would try that, even in the fourth quarter when the game was close. Just get the ball out of LeBron's hands and make someone else beat you. And it it was... It was interesting going into Game Seven without Kevin Love because I have a coaching friend who said as long as Kevin Love's not in the game, or on you know dressed out, then he thinks Cleveland will win the entire thing, which I think is just an utter, utter utterly ridiculous. But going into Game Seven, if you had to put a lot of money on who would be the second leading scorer for Cleveland, I don't think you'd be super confident, and I and I would I would have picked Jeff Green just because he was into the starting lineup and you know, he is a scorer, but even saying that, I mean, it could have been anybody. It could have been George Hill, but there's just no consistency to their offense. And, you know, J.R. Smith hits a couple threes and, you know, a few of these guys got some free throws down the stretch that made their box scores look better than they really were, but you just don't know where it's going to come from. And I just thought, that Brad Stevens could have done more to get the ball out of LeBron's hands. When he looks around and sees that no one else can hit a shot except Kyle Korver, basically the whole series, and then you know just stay home on Korver and drop off George Hill, drop off even Jeff Green. You know Jeff Green is a scorer, but he's not a knockdown three-point shooter. I know he hit that big one in the fourth quarter, but that's not necessarily his game. And I just thought that was a strategy I would have employed because... It was just LeBron every game scoring a million points. And and I get, you know, you don't want other guys to get going, but you also don't want LeBron to get 35 on you. So, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Obviously, I'm not a guy who should be questioning Brad Stevens, who is just amazing. You know, a lot of people have talked about in Game 7 how many threes they shot and how many threes they missed. But a lot of these threes were wide open. And I think... You know, there was that possession with about three minutes to go or so, and I, I'm i guessing they were up five. And Boston got three wide-open threes on the same possession because they just kept getting offensive rebounds. And it, it you could just see Cleveland had given up on that possession. It was basically, we're going to get a stop if you miss. We're not going to get a stop. It's just hoping you guys miss. And they missed, got the offensive rebound, kicked it out. Another wide-open three, missed kicked it out, another wide open three, missed, and then finally someone got the rebound, it might have been LeBron, and, you know, that was really the end of the game for the most part. So, I don't really fault them for shooting a lot of threes because they were open. You know, when you get in the second half of a game like that, it becomes a lot harder for guys to score, you know, I, I thought Tatum was incredible, I mean, he's going to be just a, the next superstar, but... If you see these other guys, you know, if you look at a guy like Al Horford, who's never been a guy who you can give the ball to, and you could give the ball to him for the most part this season in this playoffs. But when you come down to the end and it's a dogfight and you're not going to get a whistle and you have to muscle your way for a bucket, against Tristan Thompson, I don't think he really has an advantage. You know, he had an advantage over Kevin Love in the other games, but against Tristan Thompson, he just really didn't have that advantage. And. It was just tough for them to score when the threes weren't going in. And I don't think they took too many threes. Maybe Marcus Smart took a couple that he shouldn't have. But in general, I thought they had some pretty wide-open shots that they just missed, you know? And and a big part of it was they missed some free throws, too. I mean, Marcus Morris choked on a couple free throws. Marcus Smart missed some free throws. These guys missed some free throws throughout the fourth quarter that are big. And even throughout the game, you know, It's it's really interesting to me how people say, well you missed this many free throws in the fourth quarter. Well, those points in the first quarter when you miss a free throws are worth the exact same amount that they're worth in the fourth quarter. So, I don't know. It's I understand the concept of emphasizing fourth quarter makes and misses, but a make in the first quarter and a make in the fourth quarter are both worth the same amount of points. So, uh, to me, it's a little ridiculous. Going to the West, it was kind of an anticlimactic last couple games. And, you know, Chris Paul going down is a little sad for the series, because it kind of took the excitement out of it, but I just think that the Golden State Warriors are a disappointment in general. I mean, if you look at that team, to go seven games against Houston, to me is a joke. And they just, I don't know, it's its really hard to explain it, but... There was no excitement in Game 7. It's so interesting that they're down 10, they're down 12, whatever it was in Game 7, and at no point did they or myself or anyone I was watching with at any point think Houston was going to win the game. It was just like, okay, all right, we're just going to get through the motions here, and then sooner or later here they're going to make this run, they're going to go up by 10 like they did in Game 6, go up by 20, and that's going to be that. And it's so interesting that they can be down 10, look uninterested, and then all of a sudden hit a few shots and the game's over. And you're just like, what just happened? And that's the way I felt all through Game 7. And it just wasn't exciting because, like I said, at no point did I think Yusu could win that game. But going back to Golden State, if you switched LeBron and Kevin Durant, and you said, okay, you have LeBron James, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, all these other guys, and you're playing against two guys, Harden and Chris Paul, and you're down 3-2 in a series, they would bury LeBron. You would bury LeBron. Everyone on every platform in the world would bury LeBron for not being able to win against this Houston team that doesn't have near the talent that they have. Yet somehow, it was just the way it went. I mean, if you look at Kevin Durant's second guy, it's Stephen Curry. This guy's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He might be the all-time leading three-point shooter in the history of the NBA. And Ke- and and LeBron's second guy is Kevin Love, who is one of the most inconsistent players you're ever going ever gonna to run into. And it's just crazy how, I guess because they know Golden State's going to win... They just get no flack for how lackadaisical they play. And I was so impressed the whole series with how hard Houston played. And that's what kept them in the series. And you saw that all the games were low-scoring, and it's because Houston wanted them to to be low-scoring. Yeah, they got out and ran. They took early shots. But but a lot of times, they just walked the ball up. Because like I've said before, if you're going to play against a team who does what you do better than you, then the only chance you have is to slow the game down a little bit and play the game at a at a pace you want and in a in a score that you want so that you can take away more of their possessions which they do better. And they played so hard every game. Even Harden was just was battling and I I want the best teams to be in the finals and the best team in that series was Golden State. But the way they just don't care is just I don't know. It's just not they're just not a fun team anymore. They're so arrogant. I mean, okay, I, I've said this in every single podcast, so I'm going to stop. But anyway, what's interesting is they always talk about now uh, this third quarter that, that the Golden State uses to blow people out. And in the 90s, the Bulls used to do the same thing in the third quarter. And no one understands why. And I, and I have a couple reasons for it. First of all, in the if you're a good team... You don't have to play your hardest in the first half. You're kind of just getting a lay of the land, you're playing, you're you're playing hard, but you're not at your peak. And you're saving your peak for the second half because that's when it's money time. So you have a team like Houston who's playing as hard as they possibly can just to stay in the game against a team that's much more talented than them. And then in the second half, Golden State goes to their A game and goes to playing and matches the intensity, and it's over. And on top of that, I assume most of you who are coaches have played at somewhat of a high high level, and I've had this happen to me before, where you're playing a team that's better than you, and I've been the best player on teams, and I've played against teams that were better than us. And we've come out at home or whatever, and we've just battled in the first half, and I would have 25 points in the first half, or something, or 23 points, or whatever the case may be. And I remember I'd go in the locker room, and I was exhausted. And I just would think to myself, "There's no way I can do this for another half." And I think that's kind of what happened to the Rockets: is it takes so much energy just to keep up, keep up, keep up, guys, that by the second by the second half, they're done. And it's not visible like they can't play. Like, you know, when I was referring to myself, I could still play. But the shots are a little off. You know, they the when they push on you, you feel it a little more. The three that you took from the three-point line is now a foot behind the three-point line because they've pushed you out. And all of your percentages just drop a little bit. And, and then they turn the screws up a little bit in the second half. So it's a combination of the team that's not as talented being tired and the team that is more talented turning the screws up a little bit, and all of a sudden you, you know, like in Game 6, down 17, and they end up winning by 30 points, and it's just this massive turnaround, and people just don't understand. It's just, it's, you have to play at such a high level just to keep up with them that it's hard to sustain for 48 minutes. I actually think that Mike D'Antoni really outcoached Steve Kerr. I mean, he had those guys playing way harder than Golden State. He attacked... Steph Curry, and I was so impressed with that. And they attacked him all series and they embarrassed Steph Curry to be honest. I mean, they would just switch and every single guy would just go right at him and Steph Curry would just get scored on and scored on and scored on over and over and over. And it to me it was cool because he can jump around and dance and, and do all this when he scores but he just looks he just looks like a joke when he's just getting killed on every possession. And I would say that that's a good reason or a large reason why he sh- he played shot so badly in the first couple games because I thought Houston really went at him, which they did, which was documented and talked about, and that tires you out, you know? That's why they usually put Steph on some nobody on the other team, and they've been doing that for years. They'll hide Steph on the worst offensive player, and they even put Steph on P.J. Tucker for a little bit in this series. Whoever was the the guy that was least likely to score... They would put Steph on him so he could go rest, so he'd have more energy for offense. And it's a combination of him not being a good defender and him resting so he can be an offensive juggernaut. And what, Golden, uh, what Houston would do is just switch over to him, make him be the primary defender, attack him, and that wears him out. And he shot like crap. And, you know, he finally gets hot in the second half of Game 3, but... I felt like Houston stopped kind of going at him, and that's kind of what triggered him. They they seemed like they would do it early in the game, and then they would kind of get away from it. And I think they should have just kept doing it. If Steph Curry was on the floor, he's the primary defender on every single possession. And that doesn't mean that guy's to take that shot, but that guy is the guy making a move, attacking him, and if guys help, then that guy kicks it, and, and we get an open shot. But I don't understand why they went away from it, because it really seemed to wear on Steph Curry by having to guard all that all the time. Another thing, you know, and I I know I'm jumping around now, but I just, you know, remembered another point I wanted to make. There has been so much talk about Andre Iguodala, who is at best the 5th option for Golden State. I mean, if you want to talk from an offensive standpoint, he's probably the 7th or 8th option, but I know he's a solid defender. But with the amount of talent they have on their team to sit here and complain that they're missing Andre Iguodala, who averages about 8 points a game, to me it's just a joke. And it just it just shows you how lackadaisical and underachieving this team is because they're not motivated. And the fact that you tell me that you don't know if you can win without Andre Iguodala, who does nothing except defend, is a joke. I mean, who's the fifth best player on Cleveland? Who's the fifth best player on on uh, on Houston? Because I guarantee you, if you take one, th- that guy off. That team wouldn't be complaining about having them not be there, you know. I mean, we're talking about Boston missing their two best players and and basically not making excuses. And I was really impressed, by the way, with Brad Stevens' press conference after the game when an announcer asked him about, "Do you ever sit and think about where you would be with with Kyrie and and Hayward right now?" And I immediately thought, "Oh, that's a bad question." And Brad Stevens is the brilliant guy. He is immediately said. I don't want to talk about that because I don't want to take away from these guys and what these guys did this year. And I thought it was a great answer because, you know, it, it makes those guys feel like crap. You know, if your coach is, Oh yeah, man, I wish I had this guy. Well, that means you wish you didn't have a couple of the guys you have right now because they would be replacing those guys. And, I just love that Brad Stevens wouldn't go there, and he was just like, you know what, I'm proud of these guys, and you know that'll be great next year when we have them, but these guys were great this year, and I don't want to take anything away from what they did, so I thought that was really cool. So it's interesting, I I wonder if other people... So now moving on to the NBA Finals, every sports show is not excited for the NBA Finals, and to be honest with you, I'm not super excited. I'm going to watch every game, of course, but I'm not super excited either. I really don't... If Cleveland wins one game, I'll be shocked. Because, I mean, just think about this game tomorrow night. They just beat this Houston team that has sh- shooters and scores all over the floor. They run a great offense where they isolate you, they go pick and roll, they have one of the best scores in the league attacking you. And now you have Cleveland, who plays no defense, who has inconsistent shooting, and you're going to go into Golden State. Like, I. I Honestly, I think this this is over a 20-point loss in game 1. And we'll see about moving forward, but I mean, you just we just watched Cleveland struggle for 7 games to find anyone else to score besides LeBron. And the difference is that Golden State has two guys, three guys who can guard LeBron James. Kevin Durant Draymond Green, and if Andre Iguodala comes back, Andre Iguodala. And they could even put Clay on him. They could even put Livingston on him and just make it hard for him. So let's pretend that you make it hard for him and he only has 25 points. Where are you going to get the other 75 points you need to win a game against the Golden State Warriors if somehow, some way, you can hold them to only 100 points, which I don't think you can. I, I, I just don't see it. I really don't see where they're going to get these points. Because, you know, if LeBron scores 45, okay, now we're talking, okay, maybe you get 15 from Jeff Green. Maybe you get 10 from George Hill. Maybe you get 12 from Tristan Thompson. Maybe you get... But still, we're just stretching on all these. And even if Kevin Love comes back, Kevin Love comes back. If he gets 18 to LeBron's 28 or... You're still looking at forty, what, 46 points. I just don't see where the rest of the points are going to come from. You're playing a a more complete team, and you're playing a team that's going to be able to stop LeBron from getting easy hoops. And the reason why Cleveland gets open shots is because LeBron can get by his guy and bring a second and third defender. And if LeBron can't get by Durant, if LeBron cannot establish himself as a to, as as a, the ability to score easy buckets, these other defenders can stay home on their guys and then and then not give up any easy shots. So I just don't see how they even keep any of these games close. Maybe in Cleveland one time, if if Golden State just doesn't try like they've shown throughout the series, where they just don't care like what happened against San Antonio, like what happened in game 3 against the Pelicans where they just don't even care and they just kind of go through the motions and say we'll see you next game and then they turn the screws up and and beat you again by f- these teams, you know, these teams just aren't fair. It's it's funny, you know, like if you were picking up teams at a park with those guys and you put LeBron on one team and you put those guys on the other team everyone would be like this isn't fair, this is stupid. Why are we doing this? This is a waste of time. And LeBron would be like no let's play but he'd lose because he doesn't have a chance but you know the competitive nature in him thinks he can beat anybody but he can't and that's why this isn't going to be an exciting series and it's it's a little disappointing um, because we won't have the kind of drama you want and you know seeing these teams go to go at each other for the fourth time and seeing how easy it was with Durant last year it's just it's not as fun and i've you know i have a blog that i've been writing for years now and you know a f- couple years ago when durant came to the warriors i predicted that this might ruin the nba for a significant amount of time and it's on the verge of doing that and that's why everyone's rooting for houston and that's why everyone will be rooting for for gold i mean for cleveland it's because people are are tired of this team because they're just too good it's not fun people like underdogs people like close series, you know, if you're a casual fan that just tuning in because it's the NBA Finals, you want to see a close series, you don't want to see Golden State run over them again like they did last year, so it's a little disappointing, but there's really nothing we can do about it, and as long as these guys stay together, there's nothing we can do about that either. One more thing, talking about four players going to the Hall of Fame for Gold, uh, for Golden State, uh, I just don't see how Draymond Green is a Hall of Fame basketball player. Hall of Fame basketball player means one of the greatest players ever to step on the court. Draymond Green is left wide open on every offensive possession. Yes, he's a nice passer, but we have better passers. Yes, he rebounds the ball, but we have better rebounders. Yes, he's a nice defender, but he doesn't shut guys down. Who dunked on him? Oh, didn't James Harden just crush on him the other day? I mean... I just don't see on what planet a guy who averages 11 points a game is a Hall of Famer. Okay, great. He averages 11 points, 9 rebounds, and 8 assists or whatever it is. And guess what? He averages 9 rebounds because he plays on a team that stands on the perimeter and there's way more rebounds. He plays hard, which is cool. I just I just don't see how he's a Hall of Fame player. So when you say you have four Hall of Famers, do you know how he's going to get in the Hall of Fame? If this team stays together for the next 10 years and they win every single championship or almost every championship for the next 10 years, then he's just going to get in by default because he was part of a great team. And that doesn't mean that you're a Hall of Fame player. I don't even think he's an All-Star. And I've I've talked about this before, too. You know, you see these All-Stars and they're flying through the air And then you see Draymond Green as an All Star sprinting around, as playing as hard as he can, laying the ball in just so he can compete with these guys. Because he's not on their level, he just plays harder, and he's on a good team in a good situation. If you put him on a team like Memphis, who doesn't have the kind of shooters he has, that they actually guard him, I think he'd be useless. I really do. Yes, he'd have some nice passes, but guess what? Mark Gasol makes nice passes. You know, Pau Gasol makes nice passes, everybody makes nice passes, all these big guys, and he's not even a big guy, he's 6'8", you know, everyone can make a nice pass now to a cutter. And it's a lot easier when you have some of the best shooters in the history of the game on your team. And I just, I don't know, I don't think he's as great as everyone thinks, but another side rant is now over. So, we'll move on from the NBA Finals, and it's funny because I've been waiting two weeks to make these podcasts after each round, and... Basically by this time next week, this series probably could be over. And then we'll be in the purgatory of summer baseball. But we'll talk about that some other time too. Anyway, moving on to the analytics portion of the show. I want to talk about gravity. And I've kind of touched on this in other podcasts. And I just want to take some more time to get in, in more in depth in that. And, and I don't know if everyone's familiar with the term gravity. But it's a new term, and it's something that people are looking at more when they're thinking about basketball. And what gravity is, is gravity to the ball and gravity to players. So if you have the ball in your hands, or if someone has the ball in their hands, how does that move the defense? And if someone does not have the ball in their hands, how does that move the defense? And... Again, we talked about this last time about when you're running a play and having guys be close to you and and making defenders engage themselves, and that's kind of what gravity is about. So if you want to talk about LeBron when he has the ball, he probably has the most gravity of any player in the NBA. When LeBron has the ball, he has 10 pairs of eyes, 5 pairs of eyes, 10 total eyes is what I meant to say, on him at all times. When he dribbles... Every player is moving towards him, towards the paint, towards defending him. That is his gravity with the ball. Now, gravity without the ball is where a defender stands when you don't have the ball. So, if I'm standing on the three-point line and I'm a good three-point shooter, I'm going to have more gravity to myself. What does that mean? If Tristan Thompson is standing on the three-point line, his defender can stand all the way over in the middle of the paint because he has no gravity because he's not a threat out there. So, from that point to Tristan to Kyle Korver or or Steph Curry or, or Clay Thompson, where you have to stay two feet from him, that is your gravity away from the ball. So, again, what we want to do is when we're looking at film and we're watching our team, we want to see the gravity that each player has with and without the ball and move them to positions where they require gravity. And when we get into... The strategy session, I'm going to talk more about, about that. But if you have a post player, and I've mentioned this before, and he's standing on the three-point line, and he's not a three-point shooter, then he should have no gravity. And we played a team this year, and I won't mention them, but they were much better than us, and we barely lost. We They were a nationally ranked team at a level higher than us, and we lost by one uh, three points. And we were down one with about 15 seconds left. And they had two players that required no gravity. And they started one and they brought one off the bench. And at points, they had both of them in the game at the same time. And they're both bigger guys and they didn't shoot perimeter shots. So what I told my guys to do is if you're guarding that guy, you stay in the middle of the paint. And you're basically playing in a one-man zone. And... What that does is it takes away drives, it takes away cuts, and I think taking away cuts is just as important as taking away drives, because a lot of offenses are predicated on curling around screens, back doors, whatever the case may be, and now we have this guy standing in the middle of paint, and you cut open, but you're not open because we have a guy just standing there waiting for you, and that allows their defender to catch up and get back on those guys. And I felt like it was really effective. And that's the way we were able to stay in the game. And it also helped us with the rebounding too. Because when those guys were out on the perimeter setting screens and whatnot, then they weren't in a great rebounding position. And we just had our guy already in the paint. So when you're looking at your team, as I said, when a guy has the ball, the more gravity he has towards him, the more that's going to help your lesser players be open because they're going to get more open shots. Also... When a guy doesn't have the ball, and he's a great shooter, and he has gravity towards him, that's going to open up space for your drivers. That's going to open up space for your cutters. And those are things that you need to look at, because when you position your players in certain spots on the floor, their gravity is going to affect how other movements near them are going to be open or not open. Now, how do we counter gravity? Because in basketball, everything that we can do, someone can do to us. So A couple things you can do to counter gravity and counter guys not guarding your guys. Number one, if a guy doesn't have gravity, put him in a position where he does. So we have this post player, this center, who's standing on the three-point line because he's a ball reversal guy. And now their, their coach or me against this team is yelling, back off, back off, get in the paint. So what do we do? we put this guy at the high post now he requires a little more gravity now we put him at the low post now he requires full gravity so that in that requires the other team to guard him and it also puts him in good offensive rebounding position so that in itself makes the guy have to be guarded or else he's just going to get offensive rebounds you know one of the great things about dennis rodman was yes he set screens but he was always hanging around in the paint and you couldn't just leave him alone. It's not like you could just run away and go guard somebody else because he's standing underneath the basket where he can lay the ball in and where he's in offensive rebound position. So even though they were playing four on five from an offensive perspective, they weren't. There was four on four because you had to stand next to Dennis Rodman or else he would just go lay the ball in or if you helped off, they would just drop it off to him and he'd get 10 or 12 points off layups and dunks. The other way to use gravity to to use a guy who doesn't require gravity is to put him in ball screens. So this team didn't do this or if they did, I can't remember cause it was obviously a while ago. They, they didn't have the shooters to, to make it a problem. What I would do is if I had a guy that wasn't being guarded, I would go put him in a ball screen and now you're going to re if that guy can set a great ball screen, you're going to require the defensive player to get through that ball screen, or he can just shoot the three, or he can just drive on the guy. And, you know, a lot of teams now do something with a ball screen defense, whether it be switch, whether it be hedge, whether it be push, show, whatever the case may be, almost no teams just have their guy drop back. Well, if I have my guy dropped back because we're not guarding him and he goes and sets a ball screen, now that guy's coming off the ball screen wide open because we're not guarding him. And so that requires us to come back and guard that guy and takes away the fact that he doesn't have any gravity on him when he's on the perimeter. So um, you'll see it when you watch the games, uh, even the NBA games. Watch LeBron. When he he has the ball on the top of the key and he's kind of jab-stepping or kind of holding, you'll see that everybody starts creeping in. And watch everyone move when he takes one dribble towards the paint. You will see all five guys... Well, four help guys and one guy on ball, all take a step or two towards him into the paint. And that will give those shooters the space they need to redrive or to to get an open three. And then you'll see and watch the positioning too. Watch where a guy stands when Kevin Love is in the corner or when J.R. Smith is in the corner or when Jordan Clarkson's in the corner. And you'll see a difference in where they stand. And you know, people talk a lot of times about the difference between player X and player Y. Why is this guy who can jump out of the gym, play at, you know, I don't know, Long Beach State, whereas this guy plays at Duke? And a lot of it is IQ. The difference between that guy at Long Beach State is that he knows, or the difference between the guy at Duke and the guy at Long Beach State is the guy at Duke can remember the scouting report and be able to adjust to every single player on the other team and has the IQ to know and the instincts, even to know where he should be on every single one of those plays. Whereas this other guy who has all the skills, but maybe just missing that one little it thing that puts him from a low major D1 to a mid major D1 to an, an SEC team to all the way up to the top. So to a one and done. And it's a lot of times it's that IQ. And when you get to the NBA. I mean, you see a million guys in college basketball who can fill it up. You see a million guys in college basketball who jump out of the gym. So what separates those guys from the the guys that go to the NBA? And the reason it's these guys that go to Duke, they go to North Carolina, they go to Kentucky, they go to Syracuse, they go to Kansas, it's because they have this higher IQ and they can learn these things quicker. And of course they have the gifts, of course, but they also have that it factor that some of these other guys don't have. So, kind of watch for that for that when you're watching the NBA Finals. Moving on to the strategy session, I wanted to talk going along with this gravity situation about drawing up plays, and we got into it a little bit last week, and I wanted to spend more time on it today about engaging defenders and using gravity and drawing up plays that are going to work. so everyone draws up plays. Everyone takes plays, hopefully, off, off the TV and stuff. And I've taken a lot of plays off NBA plays. Just watching them on TV and you write them down and, and then you work them into your stuff. Well, the difference is the NBA court is wider. The NBA court is longer. And you have better shooters. And you have defensive three seconds. So you have a lot of rule, rule differences that affect how defenses play. So when an NBA team draws up a play, they can draw up a play knowing that they have Ray Allen in the far corner and you have to be three steps from him. Whereas you have a 38% college shooter or a 35% high school shooter who's six one, that you can play with a foot in the paint even though it's the exact same play because that guy is not as big of a threat as Ray Allen is. So when you draw up a play and and i take pride and i i've mentioned before i take pride in execution of plays i've drawn up many of my own plays i sometimes just sit around and doodle and and scratch and and see something on tv and then i'll make adjustments for my team and i'll make adjustments for the way my level of basketball is played and i think one of the biggest reasons a lot of plays don't work is because coaches just put guys on the weak side And I used to do it when I was a young coach too. You just say, okay, we're going to run this action over here with player X, Y, and Z. And then you go, what do you do with those other two guys? And you just set them on the weak side. And that doesn't work because those guys will step over and help. I think the most effective way to create a great play or create a play that's going to get your team a bucket or an open shot is to think of everything they might do. And design that play to hopefully counter everything they might do. And we talked before, I think last week, about rushing guys to the ball. And if you have action and you don't know what to do with a guy, a lot of times what you can do is rush him to the ball. Set a fake screen. Let's say your point guard is supposed to, you know, let's say you have some action going on on one side of the floor and you have a guy on the other side of the floor and you don't know what to do with him. We'll bring him up to set a ball screen and have him make the pass before the ball screen even gets there. So now that guy who is in help side has to run up with the ball screener because he thinks that his man is going to be part of the play now. And so now you've brought that guy into the action and now that guy, his defender has come with him and that opens up that part of the floor where they were going to help before. And so like when you draw up these plays, it's funny, I had a coach that I coached with Years ago, and he said, "We're going to do this on the out of bounds play. We're going to start a guy on the on the uh, <clears throat> on the block and pop him backwards, and then we're going to toss the ball over their head, over the offensive guy's head, and we're going to enter the ball that way. And we're going to do that on every play." And I said, "Okay, that's cool." I said, "What if they take that away?" And he said, "Well, how?" And I said, "Well, what if they double team? What what if they put the, the guy who guards the inbounder?" on that guy and you double team him so he has his primary defender plus the inbounder guy so when he pops backwards he's double teamed he's not open and he goes I've never seen a team do that. I said, Okay. I said, well what if they do? He goes, Well, you know, I've been coaching for a long time and I've I've never seen anybody do that before. And I said, What well, no I get that, but I'm saying what are we gonna do if someone does do that? And he just kept going back to they don't do that. And and the thing is, like I just thought that was just the wrong way to look at things because you have to look at things as if, yeah, maybe they will do that, and maybe it's a crazy way to defend and i don't and that's obviously not a crazy way, but I'm just saying in general, let's say a team does something different let's say a coach thinks outside the box and comes at you in a different way. Well, if you want your play to work, you have to be ready for that kind of stuff, so when you're tinkering with a play and when you when you have a play, and like I said last week, if you're a head coach, even if you're an assistant coach, say, hey, you know, say, hey, coach, I was messing with this play, and I, you mind if we spend 10 minutes kind of running over it and see if it might work? So when you're running the play, you want to think about counters. And I know that high school coaches don't work as much with game film, but if you're a college coach, you got to think about every option and every possible defense. Because the second you run it one time, they're going to they're going to look at it and break it down and try to figure out how to stop it. So, let's say you're running an out of bounds play. Okay. Will this play work against man to man? Will this play work if they're switching? Will this play work if the the guy guarding the ball doesn't guard the ball and he guards the closest that he double teams the closest offensive player? Will this play work if he doesn't guard the ball and he backs into the into the paint to take away any kind of backdoor cut for a layup? Okay. So now here's our play. We're going to run this with this backdoor cut. Now, if this guy backs off and guards over there, we're going to immediately go to this play, you know, X. Let's Okay, okay that's t- too confusing. Let's say our play is called baseline, okay? And now if we notice that the guy doesn't guard the ball and he backs off into the paint so we can't get our backdoor cut, we're going to run baseline X, which is just another version of baseline with that little counter because that guy's not guarding. So that's what you kind of have to do. You have to kind of mess with where defenders might be. Oh, is the defender going to guard on the outside of the, of the screen this time? Okay, what is that, how does that change the play? So when you're tinkering with these plays, you're not only tinkering with what you're doing, you're tinkering with what, how defenses can guard it because you can't say, well, they don't usually do that. Because if you say that and then they do do that, now you've, just, now you've just wasted a play and you've wasted a possession and you've got nothing out of it because you were, you were too hard-headed in saying that someone won't do that. Someone can always do that. And even if a defender screws up and is in the wrong place by accident because he made a wrong decision, it still might end up not working. So you want to have every single part of it ready and accounted for. And the hardest part is figuring out what to do with guys that aren't part of the possession. Because if you just put him on the weak side, and I remember you know, probably 10, 12 years ago, everyone would just say, put him in the short corner. Put him in the short corner. And I'll tell you right now, if I'm coaching against a team and they put a guy in the short corner, I will never guard him. And I will sit there and say, okay, I don't care how good of a shooter you are, if you want to make a 12 to 15 foot baseline shot all day long with my guy slowly closing out to you, I'm okay with that. And we'll take away all your layups, we'll take away all your drives because my guy's going to stand in the middle of the paint and play help side, and you can toss it over that guy in the short, side, short corner all night long, and you guys can try to beat me that way. It's just not, it's just not an effective way to play. If you're going to hide a guy on the weak side, hide him on the weak side block. Hide him one step away from the weak side block so when you drive, he, he, can, take, he can take one power step and lay the ball in. If you're going to hide somebody on the weak side, make sure it's your best shooter, and make sure he's a good enough shooter that the other team is going to change how they play their help side defense for him and if they're not if they're still going to keep that guy let's say you know in the middle of the paint because he's on the weak side well then part of your play should be hitting that guy making part of that play driving to where that guy is going to help and then kicking to that guy wide open on the weak side because if a team is going to help you help like that then you need to make them pay for helping like that the worst thing you can do is not make a team pay for helping because then they'll just do it the entire game so the play I wanted to get into was a play from the Miami Heat when they had LeBron and I love this play. I haven't had a team with the right personnel to be able to run it, but it's in my book and I will run it hopefully at some time at some point. So this was this play and this this is going to focus on engaging a defender that that has no part in the play. So it was a it was basically like a a flare play that Miami used when they had LeBron. And they would run it for Chalmers, they would run it for Ray Allen, they would run it for Dwayne Wade. So let's say they were going to run it for Dwayne Wade, okay? So you have Dwayne Wade, you have LeBron, you have Chris Bosch, you have Ray Allen, and you have Chris Anderson. And Chris Anderson is our guy who has no point in the play, okay? And what Miami did in order to get him out of the play, okay? So, LeBron's going to come up, facing facing the hoop. He's on the right-hand side. And actually, sorry, Dwayne Wade's going to start with the ball. He's coming up the middle. Chris Bosh is going to be on the weak side, elbow extended. Ray Allen is going to be on the right side, on the strong side corner. Okay, so... Here comes Ray Allen. Oh, uh, sorry. Here comes Dwayne Wade. He crosses half court and LeBron is up high on the right-hand side as well. And Chris Anderson's on the strong side block. So, again to recap, if you're facing the basket, Dwayne Wade's in the middle of the floor, LeBron's to his right, Ray Allen's in the in the right-hand corner. Chris Bosh is at the elbow extended on the left. He's the only person on the left side of the floor and then Chris Bosh I mean, uh, Ryan, uh, Chris Anderson is on the strong side block, on LeBron and Ray Allen side. So, <clears throat> because you have gravity with Ray Allen and the ball is even close to his side of the floor, you're going to be guarding Ray Allen very close. Because Chris Bosh is high on the floor, you're going to be guarding Chris Bosh very close. D- uh, Dwayne Wade has the ball, he's being guarded close, and of course you're guarding LeBron very close on the ball, uh, 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 one pass away from the ball. Now you have Ryan, uh, Chris Anderson. I'm going to keep calling him Ryan because, because he, Ryan Anderson is more in our heads. But if you guys don't remember Chris Anderson, he's the guy who has tons of tattoos. He, wore the mo- he had the mohawk. He doesn't really shoot the ball, uh, but he was a hard worker and played in the NBA for a long time. So Dwayne Wade passes the ball to LeBron. Now, the play is for Dwayne Wade to use this flare screen. But with Chris Anderson's on the block, his man doesn't really have to guard him. LeBron's way far away. He's not a post threat. So his man can kind of stay off of him and and guard for any kind of drive or or cut. So what Miami did was they took Chris Anderson when the ball got passed to LeBron and he ran up and set a ball screen for LeBron. Now, while he's running up, his defender has to run up because you're not going to let LeBron James come off a ball screen wide open. Whether you're switching, whether you're showing, it doesn't matter. You are coming up with Chris Anderson because he's setting a, a pick for LeBron. And even just the action of him running towards the ball, his defender's going to go, oh crap, and start running up with him, right? Even if he just stopped at the elbow, he would still bring his defender up a little bit. But even better than that, Eric Spolscher drew up such a great play that he comes up, And he sets his ball screen for LeBron. And while he's setting his ball screen for LeBron, the action is happening over there with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. So what they would do is, Chris Bosh would take another step out, and he would set a flare screen for Dwayne Wade. And it was so unguardable that they used to run this play so many times, even for Chalmers, because he was a knockdown shooter. You just have to have a knockdown shooter. And you have to have a stretch four who can knock down that 15 to 18 footer, and if he can hit that three, that's even better. So what would they do? They'd say, okay, we're going to run Dwayne Wade off this flare screen. If you go underneath it, then Dwayne Wade will pop behind it and LeBron will pass him the ball and he's going to hit that open three. And that's why they would run it for Chalmers and, and Ray Allen also, because if you went underneath it, then they would. those guys are knockdown three-point shooters. Okay, so now you don't do that. Now you trail the screen. So now you're going to trail the screen and that flare screen that Chris Bosch is going to set for you As soon as your defender gets on top of Chris Bosh, because he's going over the top, then Dwayne Wade is going to cut to the hoop, and now LeBron will hit him on that cut for a layup. Now, if Chris Anderson was standing there on the block, on the strong side or the weak side block, that play would never work, because he'd be in the way and his man would be helping. So because they ran him to the ball, to this ball screen, which isn't really screen and ice cream and ice cream and LeBron would come off of it but just to bring that defender out that's the genius of this play you're going oh man they're getting LeBron in a ball screen no he has no interest in it and sometimes he wouldn't sometimes he would just take one dribble towards it and then he would just make the pass from there because the point is not that he comes off the ball screen the point is to get Chris Anderson's man away from the hoop and get his defender away from the hoop and that's why it was such a brilliant play and so you have Dwayne Wade cutting to the hoop. So now. The de- defense gets beat on that, maybe, or maybe not. And what's their counter? Well, they say, okay, Chris Bosh's band. You have to drop in and help on that curl, on that flare curl by Dwayne Wade. Okay, great. So now what's going to happen? Chris Bosh is going to take one step out and he's going to knock down that 17-footer. And when you're talking about an NBA-caliber player that can knock down that shot 70% of the time when he's open, that's a great play. So... The last counter that I would think of, and see, this is what I'm doing. Even right now, as I'm going through this play, I'm thinking of all the things the defense might do. And so if I'm the defense now, what do I do? Maybe I switch it. Okay, now you have the bigger guy on Dwayne Wade, and now you have the smaller guy on Chris Bosh. And maybe they've taken that play away. But now you have LeBron coming off this ball screen, because if no one's open, he's going to actually use the ball screen. And what you're going to do is you're going to just pop Dwayne Wade out to the wing after he makes his cut. You're going to kick the ball to him, and what you're going to do is you're either going to have Chris Bosh slide down to the block and take advantage of a smaller guy, or you're going to have Dwayne Wade on the wing, in prime Dwayne Wade, and take this guy off the dribble and try to beat him one-on-one. And all of those things that defense just tried to do to take away this play, we've now countered. So there's so many ways to think about this. And that's why it's that's why engaging all of your defenders is so important, because there's so many ways that they can try to counter this and if you're a coach and you say well they don't usually do that then you're going to be missing out on 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 you're just not going to be coaching in the most effective way possible in the most because you're you're missing a counter that a team is going to do and maybe one team doesn't but maybe the next team or the next team or the next team does so we've just talked about on one play them guarding this play three or four different ways So that means you have to have counters and you have to be ready to run this play offensively four different ways based on how the defense is going to guard it. And, of course, we're talking about NBA players, and this is why they're in the NBA, because they can make these adjustments and reads and are still able to score no matter how this defense adjusts to them. So there's two morals to the story, I guess. And like I said, the first one is looking at a play from every possible angle and figuring out how the defense can guard this from every single angle. And the second thing is engaging the defender of all five guys and making sure that you're not going to have a defender just camping in the key or camping in a cutting lane or camping in a driving lane because you haven't been effective with one of your players. So next time you watch a play and you go, oh man, I I want to use that play, you need to think about, okay, for my team, for my level, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do with this player who's clearly not as good of a shooter or clearly not as good of a scorer or clearly not good of this or that or this as this guy that I'm seeing do it on TV? What am I going to do with him to make his defender guard him? And I'll tell you, sometimes it's just as simple as making a a cut towards the ball. Because if you're, especially with wing players, if you're a wing player, a wing defender, and your guy cuts towards the ball, well, you're about to be one pass away, so his defender must come with him. So sometimes it's easy as doing something like that. But you always want to try to make sure that you have all five defenders accounted for and what they might possibly do. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, Hopefully that can help you guys in your coaching and with your teams. And looking forward to next time, and we will have an NBA champion. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll uh, talk to you next time.